Cause we're the Houston Oilers Houston Oilers Houston Oilers number one Yes, we're the Houston Oilers Houston Oilers Houston Oilers Listening to Battle Red Radio. I'm Matt Weston tonight. I'm sitting here by myself to empty out this long mailbag that we have here of all of your great listener questions. You know, sometimes it's it's hard to get to all of them, and so I want to make sure that I'm able to. And it's one of those things that even though this team has had a bad season and they've been very stupid this year. And watching the video, you watch the same thing over again, and it's still like the same bad stuff. There still is always a ton to talk about. And like I always say, even though the Texans are bad, doesn't mean that football is bad. And so sometimes it's hard just to get to some of this stuff. And so I know we did a show two nights ago with Steph Stradley that was you know three hours long. And somehow, even despite that, we weren't able to get to a lot of listener questions, which I kind of thought that was something that could happen, um, but. It was still a great episode nonetheless, and make sure you listen to it, and it's there for you all year long. Like The idea is that the culture issues that we talked about, the macro issues, they're going to be there six weeks from now. You know, The only thing that may really change is a Deshaun Watson trade, but you can have that for you throughout the rest of the year while you take naps or take a bath or go for a walk. You can slowly chew on it. Um, it'll be there whenever you need it. So the, the first thing is the big news is that Mark Ingram was traded to the New Orleans Saints. And what we're thinking is this is probably going to be a late-round pick. And Ingram automatically adds you know, depth to the running back position and back up Alvin Kamara. And kind of one of the strange things that happened this year, you know, personally watching this team, was that I thought Mark Ingram was you know, washed up playing for Baltimore. And I expected him to be you know, pretty bad this year, especially playing in an offensive line, a scheme that doesn't really like have a true focus in the run game. Or like you went... Ingram to be more like a power north and south back, and I expect him to be more for red zone situations, but that didn't really occur at all this year. Mark Ingram has instead been the Texans' best running back by far all year long. He takes on contact well. He creates yards after contact, unlike the rest of the running backs on the entire roster. He breaks tackles. Um, he's been their best back even at, even in his you know 34-year season, I believe, and so he's been actually kind of fun to watch, and he creates a lot on his own, unlike a lot of the kind of players that we see out there for the Texans running back position right now. And I also think this kind of like starts the fire sale too for the Houston Texans, where you know you see Ingram trade for a late round pick, and there's a whole slew of veterans that can maybe trade for late round picks, including Malik Collins, uh, Desmond King, Camu Gregor Hill, Brandon Cooks. There's a, a Farrell Brown, maybe even. There's a lot of players here that can be traded, and just about everyone on the roster is expendable, too. Because you kind of like the whole point of this year was to see if there's any cornerstone t- uh, players here, if there's any young talent that'll be worthwhile in the future. And the Texans instead put more of an emphasis on their veteran talent instead. And so we didn't really have a lot of those things answered this year. And so they should have done this, you know, they should have started the fire sale seven months ago. Nick Casario was wrong, he did a poor job doing so. But now here's the time, you know, the trade deadline being on Tuesday to start moving some of these players for draft picks. 
Um, and like of them, I think Brand Cooks is probably the most interesting one because he has such a low cap hit. It's only you know, around five and a half million dollars this year. And same thing with next year. There's no bonus money attached to it either. And so the Texans can move on from Brand Cooks fairly easily. And like Cooks is one of those guys I was wrong about. I thought he was more of like a one B option. I didn't think a lot of his production would carry over without Deshaun Watson because most of his production were deep crossing routes where Watson just made incredible throws. And instead this year, like Cooks is the entirety of the passing offense. Like he's the Texans' entire offense at the moment. And so I do think if they traded him, that they don't have an offense at all whatsoever. Like the like you might as well forfeit the season. But if you can get a second round pick or a third round pick, I think you know for sure that'd be worth it for trading you know Brandon Cooks. Um, he had you know a very mean thing to say after the trade Mark Ingram happened, and he said this is such. I'm a cuss, so make sure you turn it down for your children. He said, this is such bullshit, such a joke. And so Cooks is a guy who you know, talked about the fact that he never wanted to be traded again. He would accept a trade anywhere and that sort of thing. But now after this and probably his disgruntlement for playing for a 1-6 football team and Deshaun Watson not being here at all, there's a chance that you know, Cooks can move too. And of all the players the Texans have, aside from maybe Justin Reed, Cooks is probably the one guy that you could get a second or a third round pick for whereas the rest of these are probably going to be you know, sixth and seventh round picks. And then Reed, too, maybe this is a competition for him to see if he's worthy of you know, paying $12, $13 million a year. But at a non-premium position at safety where Reed's very good, but not necessarily like an elite safety, is he worth keeping around? Is he a fundamental building block for a defense of the future? I don't necessarily think so. And so that opens the door, too, for maybe you know, Reed being traded. Um, so that being said, let's get into some of these great questions that you have for us. The first one is from at Marvin Bernard four, and he asked, will David Carr be inducted into the Texans ring of honor? Um, it's a very funny question. I know talking to Steph, she kind of mentioned a little bit of the David Carr era that was lost to me because I was a, a fat middle schooler whenever Carr was their quarterback, where she was saying that they hired a consulting firm to see if David Carr could be fixed to get the answer they wanted. They hired coaches based off of who they thought could fix David Carr. Gary Kubiak was the one to commit to doing that. And after one year of, ha- of him having games where he completed you know, 17 passes in a row for three yards or whatever, I'm playing a, you know, an offense that's very friendly for quarterbacks. It still didn't work out, and he was able to convince the Texans that Carr is in it, and then made the trade for Matt Schaub. And then that started the, the Texans' AFC South championship wins in 2011 in 2012 when they finally broke through. Uh, So I don't think Carr is going to be part of the Texans' ring of honor. You know, really like it's going to be Andre Johnson and J.J. Watt. And I really couldn't see DeAndre Hopkins being added to it because of when he was traded to his his career. But he'd still be very worthy from a talent perspective. But uh, yeah, it's a really good one. The next question is from Battle Red Blog Masthead member. Matt Robinson, his Twitter handle is at Houston Houdini. Make sure you give him a follow. He said, with the exception of Cleveland and Buffalo, I would argue we've had a pretty soft schedule for Mills to dip his toes in. Out of the remaining games on the horizon, what is your best bet for Texans win number two? Well, definitely it's not going to be this week playing the Los Angeles Rams. You know, they're a juggernaut at the moment. They have probably the most efficient passing offense in the NFL. They've done a great job scheming their downfield passes. And that was like the biggest difference between Jared Goff and Matthew Stafford is that one is that he could make the downfield throws that 
you know, Jared Goff has been unable to make his entire career there just about. And the other thing, too, is like it allows their offense to be more multidimensional or they can run their 11 personnel, their jet sweeps, their screens, their outside zone. But they can also break that off into more of a spread, empty, shotgun passing attack. And every time Goff was in those situations, he was pretty terrible at it. So it won't be this week against the Rams. Next, the week after that, they play the Dolphins after the bye. We may have Tyrod Taylor back then. Um, I don't really see the point in playing Tyrod Taylor unless you're just like want some moral victories of, hey, you know, if he was healthy all year, we could have won five games instead of two games or three games. Um, and then after that's the Tennessee Titans, New York Jets, the Indianapolis Colts, and the Seattle Seahawks, who should have Russell Wilson. You know, I'm a little bit behind Miami at the moment. There's a lot, I have like probably two or three Miami games I need to watch before that. Um, but they still have like, they're weird because they kind of went away from their high blitz defense. Their defense is kind of falling apart. Their pass rush hasn't been very good from like a front four perspective. They've had trouble stopping explosive plays this year too. And when they do blitz, hasn't really gone there. And they still have a really bad run defense. Their offensive line's wretched. You know, two got hurt taking a really bad hit that he stared at. Uh, he's, he's shown some touch down the sideline though. And he throws the flat well. He throws the screen pass well. He throws the slant well. Uh, he can make like three throws. And like the biggest difference though is just his ability to throw the ball downfield, which he didn't have last year. And that was, again, the biggest difference between him and Ryan Fitzpatrick. But like, they still are kind of like a pain to play against defensively. And so just because of their um, their scheme and how how you would assume that they would be go back to more of a high blitz scheme against Davis Mills, I think that's a game Miami should win if Mills is a starter. And if Houston does win that game, it's mainly because their offensive line you know, finally clicked together somewhat and they were able to run the ball finally after having the worst run offense in football this year. But I'm not necessarily buying it. I think really the team here is the Jets in three weeks, and I think Davis Mills could beat the Jets. Their pass rush is really good. Their, their secondary is funny because they don't have a player younger than like 25 starting for, except for Marcus May. And Zach Wilson's hurt, and one of the reasons why I picked the Jets to on the under this year was because I thought he could probably get hurt this year because the Wrights have their offensive lines terrible. And their backup quarterbacks are abysmal. They were so bad that it has led to them trading for Joe Flacco after he played for them last year. And the worst football I watched last season were the Joe Flacco Jets games where he's just indignant. He doesn't want to be out there. He's, you know, just rude the entire time. Uh, he has no mobility at all whatsoever. And watching him play against like Buffalo and Miami last year were hilarious. So it's going to be fun to watch maybe a Joe Flacco versus Texans game because Wilson's supposed to be out for two to four weeks, and that puts him at the timetable where we could see Joe Flacco against the Houston Texans where Davis Mills could potentially get his first win unless they are starting Tyrod Taylor at that point. So that leads me to our next question from at Confused Lefty, and he asks, will the Texans go 1-16? in um, if Davis Mills is a starter, I think it's possible they could go one in sixteen. If they start Tyrod Taylor for, like I just mentioned, for any sort of moral victories reasons, I think that could change. Where maybe they could win three games or four games instead. But yeah, if Davis Mills is a starter, I think they could go one in sixteen, or I would probably lean more to, you know, two and fifteen. The new schedule keeps screwing me up. I'm so old and rigid and stupid that it's hard for me to be more flexible and remember that. But I think 2-16 and is most likely and Davis Mills starts the rest of the year with that one win against the Jets. Because after the Jets, like I mentioned, they play the Colts, they play the Seahawks, 
than Jacksonville. And Jacksonville's played better since that Houston game. Um, they were just like really poorly coached. They weren't really prepared for the 2021 season. And they've just lost a lot of close, stupid games and like Houston, who's been blown out lately. And so that's a game I would think Jacksonville would win now at this point, especially since they have rediscovered the fact that James Robinson is a very good running back. Then they play the Chargers, then the Niners, and then week seven, week 18 against the Tennessee Titans, where you know, Derrick Henry typically runs for 250 yards and breaks all the records. But yeah, I'm leaning towards 2-16 and 16 with a win over the Jets, whether or not Davis Mills is a starter. If Taylor's a starter, maybe they can beat Jacksonville again. Maybe they can pull an upset. Maybe they can get to four wins with Taylor. Um, but I don't really see the point in playing Taylor at this point at all. You know, it's more important just kind of like keep giving Mills his chances out there, see if he can prove anything as a starter, which I don't think he's going to do. But it seems more of a more of a better use of your time this season than putting Tyrod Taylor back out there. Our next question is from at Exiled in Texas. He said, your culture stinks by almost every neutral yardstick. What would make this FO think they are smarter than the whole NFL? And you know, this is a lot of what we talked about with Steph the other night about the culture of the team. And that's what this season was all about, building the culture, getting David Coley here to keep you know, morale high during a culture you know, shift uh, to cr- help create the culture in Houston too. And you know, they've also been very like blunt about, they just kind of give off this air that they know exactly what they're doing, that the decisions they're making are correct, that they're doing the right thing every step of the way, that it was smart to sign this horde of non-playable characters, that you know Davis Mills was worthy was worthy of the selection they took him at, which I didn't think at the time, and uh, I didn't think Davis Mills was going to be good. I still don't think he's going to be good. To trading for Marcus Cannon, to putting young players at poor positions, to just kind of putting a lot of players in positions that don't really work out, to running Levy Smith's archaic cover two defense that they kind of went away from already against Arizona by playing more cover three after kind of mixing it up with less cover two because they don't have the linebackers to care to to carry out all the coverage tasks either um, to where they're at today. And so I don't, I don't know, like, I don't really know where it comes from. And it is strange to see a team that has failed as much as they've had the last two seasons, but to be like adamant that they're on the right path. And there's this weird, like you kind of persecution complex that they have where they want to you know, be bad. And they look at it as like, this is just turmoil. This is just a, a, an obstacle in the path that they have to overcome. And so they, they've hung themselves up to their own cross in a lot of ways instead of just like making easy things easy and then instead they make things you know, more difficult than they need to be. So I, I don't know. I really I really don't get it. Um, I think kind of part of it may just be too because of Nick Cassera coming from New England and you know, knowing what works, as David Coley liked to put it, from his stops in Buffalo and Kansas City and Baltimore – and so you kind of have like that same kind of air from a lot of those sex New England guys, regardless or not, if they fail, kind of we saw with Matt Patricia in Detroit, you know, last season that even though he's done, a, was a terrible head coach and was doing terribly the entire time, he still kind of was like very adamant that, you know, he was the smartest guy there, that the, the press was wrong, that, you know, it was all these other reasons that they weren't good instead of it was the fact that like he was a terrible head coach and he was terrible making personnel decisions too. So I, I really don't know. I, I really have no idea why um, they're so adamant in, what, in the things that they are. So our next question is from at Smooth Grandma. Or he changed it. It's at Smooth Grandma Ma. I don't know. 
I miss how you say it. I don't know. But Smooth Grandma is uh, one, one of our best friends on the podcast. He said, what are the odds you get Texans-themed dessert recipes this week to save off that football feeling for Matt Steph Strally? We didn't get to that one, unfortunately. I'm sure if you asked her, she'd have something she could pull out of the hat for you. Um, I don't I don't have any at all whatsoever. The only thing I have that I can say is very good, that's worth trying this time of year, is a friend of mine showed me this drink, and it's you know whiskey or bourbon, apple cider, lemon juice, honey, and cinnamon sticks, and you just pretty much just get a big old pot. You heat the apple cider up in it. You put honey in the cup. You put lemon juice in the cup. You put a cinnamon stick in there. You put your whiskey in there, and then you add that hot apple cider to it. It's very good. I know it's 82 degrees still here in Texas, and so it may not just be the time of year yet for it, but as we you know, finally get that cold front and things you know, start to get spooky, um, it's something that's we're trying out, even though it's not exactly a dessert. His next question is, is Greenard good because he's talented or because opposing quarterbacks know they will win and sacks mean nothing, so they just give him away? Yeah, this reminds me of that meme of like low IQ, midwit, and high IQ. And uh, on the low end of the bell curve, it says, you know, sacks are, are important. In the midwit portion of the bell curve, it says sacks aren't that important. Instead, what matters are, you know, quarterback hits and pressures and hurries. And on the high end of the bell, cor- bell curve, it says sacks are important. Um, I, you know, I think it's sacks are very important, but it makes sacks. And I think like pressures can kind of be like a, a empty and a fake sack stat in ways too, where like there's a lot of pressures that really aren't meaningful, especially considering, you know, how passage change depending on what type of pass attempt is it, if it's like quick game or if it's, you know, a five step drop or a seven step drop, like it changes how offensive linemen will set their, uh, have their pass sets too. And so sometimes you see like these pass rushes that are good, but it's kind of what the offensive line's giving up to force them outside instead of inside because the ball's out quickly or, you know, they miss a, they miss a cut block and they jump over them and the ball, the quarterback doesn't get it out right away and that counts as a hurry. I think Millie Collins is a good example of that. Like guys had a lot of pressures this year, but not the sacks or quarterback hits. So I, I do think sacks are important. You know, when it comes to Grenard, I just think he's he's good, you know. He reminds me a lot of a young Whitney Merciless where he has a really good, you know, inside-out move. He has good hands. He's able to chop well. He's able to rip well. Um and, like, if you get him on a team with the really good, like, seven-tier rushers, which are hard to find out there, but whenever he can really, like, turn the edge and use more of a wider uh, wider pass set, I think he can lead to a lot of sacks from him, too. And, you know, he's the best edge defender on this team. And I think the other thing about him that I like a lot is that he does have a counter move. Like, he's strong enough to bull rush. He's strong enough to go inside. And so, like, the problem with Jacob Martin is that he can only go outside with that chop. He has no inside move. His bull rush is pathetic. He doesn't really have like an inside spin at all, which would be helpful too. And so tackle is just overset on that speed rush, and he just kind of flails his arm, doesn't really get anything at all to it. So I do think Green Art's like multi-dimensional in this pass rush. In the run game, he's played a lot of six technique. And you know, the same thing, like he just has a lot of lateral quickness. He actually reads the run very well. He reads his keys well. He knows where the ball is going. He's actually able to make plays on the ball. Um, and he plays a really good pad level too, so it's hard for you know, tight ends and tackles to move him in one versus one matchups, despite the fact that he is a little bit undersized too. But yeah, I mean, he's the, he's our angler fish. You know, he's the glimmer of light at the bottom of the abyss that we're in right now. And I do believe he's the Texans, you know, probably their, their best source of young talent. If you don't, with Justin Reed's stats being you know, up in the air for next season 
And again, he's been far away their best edge rusher. And it's been great to see him go from playing a core of the snaps to playing you know, 56% of the snaps last week, tied with Charles Omenihu for the most on the edge too. And he's really been one of the few you know, bright spots we've had this season. So our next question is also from Aspooth Grandma. And he asks, is Tim Kelly holding Davis Mills back or is Coley holding Tim Kelly? Or has Kassir mandated only screen passes and draw plays or is Davis Mills holding Davis Mills back? And at Houston, Udini said to piggyback on it, how much of the game plan is Tim Kelly staying true to his commitment, running the ball more versus how much faith they have in Mills? And, you know, I think both of these questions really summarize the last two weeks very well. You know, two weeks ago, they played the Indianapolis Colts. The Colts have bad exterior pass rushers because Chris Pallard is overrated. and He's, he's never drafted a good edge defender. They have a bunch of cornerbacks who can't stay on top of their routes. Their safeties, you know, Julian Blackman was healthy at the time, but they're still playing Card Willis and Anderson Sandejo, and they're having trouble, you know, whenever those safeties are picked apart by certain pass concepts that isolate those safeties, as we saw in their games against the Rams and the Seahawks. Um, and so this is a pass defense that was primed to beat downfield. And the week before that against New England, you know, Davis Mills made three really good downfield passes. One was kind of off script to Roberts down the sideline or to Chris Moore down the sideline. The second one was another off script one to Chris Conley, and they hit Conley on the flea flicker too. And you know, two of those were like sublime passes that he just barely put the ball, ball like a certain window. The flea flicker to Chris Conley was just placed in the perfect position. You know, it was a beautiful throw. You know, how often do flea flickers work? You know, I don't know the success rate on it. But the play fake, you know, really did a lot to make that play work. But the ball is put in the perfect spot also. And, like, even though he showed that in those three throws, and that was what I thought was his best skill at Stanford, was throwing the ball down the side on a touch. The Texans put him back inside of Tim Kelly's womb to gestate for a longer period of time. Um, and, like, you really, you know, you can't put the fetus back in the, in the womb. They kind of did exactly that by doing so. And so the last two weeks, we haven't seen any downfield passes. I mentioned Indianapolis. The Cardinals last week, they had problems at the number two cornerback position between Robert Alford, Antonio Hamilton, Marco Wilson playing the number two cornerback positions. All three of those guys have been they're really easy to beat this year. They've had problems at those spots. Byron Murphy Jr. has made the leap this year after getting better you know, every year in the league. Here, entering year three, he's really made it, which is kind of typical that you see from good cornerbacks. That usually takes two seasons for them to make a significant jump in performance. And, you know, Murphy's been that. And also last week too, you know, the Cardinals played a lot of single high safety shells whenever the game was close. And so you saw a lot of Buda Baker coming down in the robber position or near the box. And the Texans had, you know, seven guys to block eight and they were unable to do so, which limits to their run game. And then once they fell behind, you know, they just kind of used another safety as a robber position instead of playing too high. But it's kind of a big difference to what Arizona did previously where they had Baker all around the ball, playing more of a robber spot. Now he's playing deep middle, and with his speed, he's able to take away their deep pass, deep passes all on his own. And they've had to do that just because of their problems at you know the two through four cornerback positions. But he's such an incredible talent that's been able to work. Like he's turned into Earl Thomas. Like he's playing at a level of deep middle safety that's comparable to Earl Thomas this year. And so, like even in spite of that, though, they didn't give him any shots downfield. It was still primarily screen passes on third down. It was touches to David Johnson on third down. And like he's really only throwing, you know, four routes at the moment. 
they run that play action pass against cover three where they throw the they throw the post, which you know worked last week and that was the biggest play of the game was that twenty two yard pass to Nico Collins. They throw out routes and they hit, you know, Collins on one, they hit Cooks on another one. Uh Nils try to go back shoulder to Collins down the sideline and fail miserably at it. They run, you know, quick curls and comebacks too. And that's really it. Like the only throws that, you know, Mills kind of made last week with any success were throws off play action. Everything else was, you know, wretched and terrible. And so I, I don't know like why they're doing what they're doing after the performance he had against New England and based off what he was good at in Stanford. But my guess is just that he's bad in practice, you know, that he's struggling in practice, that he doesn't have a good grasp of the playbook just yet, that they're still trying to hide him, that I think they have overrated Laramie Tensel internally too. And they think, well, with Jaron Christian there, we can't have, you know, pass sets that are more than three-step drops. And so because of this, everything's out quick, everything's out immediately, and uh, they're not really kind of giving him a chance at all. And so I think Tim Coley, Tim Kelly's the one holding him back. I think Coley just kind of allows him to do whatever he wants to do. Um, I think it's all on him, and I think he's making the decisions he's making either because, one, he kind of blew his entire load in the first few weeks of the season and didn't really have an offense you know, set up for Davis Mills. And I think the second thing, too, is just like Mills isn't very good. I wrote about last year. I wrote about this summer. I wrote about it. You know, this starts this year. I wrote about the fact that he was good against New England, but were those three big throws replica replicable? And so far this year, it's been a resounding no. Like they they haven't been. And not only that, but they haven't given him the chance to do so. And I think just by the fact that they haven't given him a shot, I think that kind of answers the question of you know why they haven't. You know, I think it says a lot about what they actually think about Mills too. So I mean, I think he's a backup quarterback. I'm not expecting much too much form in the future and maybe he's a backup quarterback who knows it's just hard to compare quarterbacks that are milling athletes that are slow that don't have great pocket presence to take big hits that have spotty inaccuracy and have like you know his arm string I think this year has been above average but it's not spectacular you know and so with all those attributes he has like there really isn't very many quarterbacks who ever last in the league very long like that and really the only thing you're pointing to is that he hasn't played a lot of games. He was injured before, but it doesn't matter at a certain point, you know? He's been on the field. We've seen him has been good. And so I don't know how you can play anything around him in the future, but he still has, you know, nine more, I guess 10 more games left this year to try to show something depending on how or when or if they ever play Tyrod Taylor. So I'm going with Tim Kelly's holding Mills back and Mills himself is holding himself back by not being very good. I think how much of it is just a game plan by they don't have very much faith in Mills because even with Tyrod out there, they were still throwing the ball, you know, 25, 30 times. They had some downfield passing combinations that worked out. They were running the ball just because it was part of, you know, the the window dressing they did for their play-action passing game. And like they had to do to make that offense kind of give some illusion even though they weren't good at it. But it really, I think, is on, more on Mills than anything else. Our next question is from at T Schmidt seven two three. One of my good friends he asked, "Does Deshaun Watson throw a pass this year? If so, for what team?" I look. I think this one's such a, a weird thing because like everything you read now is it's fifty fifty. It's maybe maybe not. The latest rumor is that they agreed to a terms with Miami, but Miami wants assurance that Watson won't be you know, suspended at all. Roger Goodell said they're still working on their investigation, but they're limited in how much information they can gather for it. And there really isn't like a suspension in sight. And we don't know if or if he's ever going to be suspended. We don't know what's going to happen if this goes to trial or not. 
Um, the legal process is kind of like a slow death march, even though you know, Steph Charlie did say differently that you know Busby or Harden, whichever whichever one of those guys it is, I don't know. I uh, like to shoot for a speedy trial. So maybe the trial itself goes fast, but it still takes a while to get to that point at the moment too. So I don't know. I, I personally think after seeing everything that he gets traded, but I really hope he doesn't. Like I hope Nick is here waits until next year because you have to get top 10 picks for Deshaun Watson. You can't get mid-round picks. You can't get you know the 24th pick at all. And I think maybe, maybe by hanging on as long as he is, by trading Watson now at the trade deadline, he's assuming that you know, Miami with one win, even if they trade for Watson, he can't win the offense quick enough. And the Dolphins are still, you know, only a, a five-win team if they do trade for Watson this year. And then it ends up being a top 10 pick. And then, but even then though, they have San Francisco's pick this year. So it doesn't really matter at all either. Um, but it does sound like he does want three first-round picks at minimum. And I believe he should be able to get that. But I still think if you wait out the year, because Watson has a pretty tradable contract. I know it jumps up to $30 million, but for a player of his caliber, it really isn't that much of a cap hit, especially seeing what quarterbacks are going for nowadays too. And the fact that every offseason quarterbacks get more expensive. I still think if they hold on to him, they could get a good offer then. They'll have more teams bidding for his services after the year they just had. I think Watson too just probably wants to play football really badly. And if you wait out you know, another year, I think he'll be even more you know, likely to acquiesce and accept a trade to a team maybe he didn't want to go to before. And so that opens the door for, you know, Denver, Carolina, or the Giants, or, you know, one of these other franchises, or Washington, that wouldn't be expected to be in the Watson sweepstakes that now all of a sudden is. So to answer uh, T. Schmidt's question, it is, yes, I think he gets traded. Um, I don't. I hope he doesn't, but I think he gets traded. And if he does, I would think it would be Miami. You know, I think Miami's the only team who will for sure give them what they want at the trade deadline. I think if they wait, I think multiple teams will be able to give them what they want. But at the trade deadline, I think Miami's it. They can give up San Francisco's pick this year, their pick next year, and San Francisco's pick next year, which is two-thirds or, or three first-round picks. They can throw some additional second rounds in there and maybe get Christian Wilkins, maybe get Javon Holland, maybe get Jalen Phillips, You know, maybe get some defensive players to add to it. But I think I think that's kind of like the the likeliest set of circumstances. But I really hope they wait an additional year. The next question is from at BDB Sport. This one really kind of threw me for a loop. I uh, it took me a second to think of this one. But he said, "When was the last time the Texans did something that truly made you happy?" And this past off season didn't happen. The 2020 off season didn't happen. The 2019 off season it didn't happen. Um, so like I it I like nothing they did to improve the team from like a like off season standpoint or what they did in the game didn't really happen at all. It's like and it and really like the last thing they did that made me truly happy was firing Bill O'Brien. And you know, I know this year's terrible and there's a lot of really bad stuff going on with the football team, but just the fact that Bill O'Brien is no longer here, that in and of itself is makes this season better than last year. Like, I know Watson's not around, and, and he had the sexual assault allegations, and we don't know what's going to happen there. But just not having to watch a Bill O'Brien team being stuck in the mud of, you know, his own arrogance and petulance, it's been, you know, better to watch that. Like, I'd rather watch a David Coley team than a Bill O'Brien team. And so the last thing they did that made me happy was firing Bill O'Brien after their own four-start last year. 
Um, I think he should have been fired, and I'm glad they made the decision to do so. I'm glad I didn't open up the door for him to, you know, beat Jacksonville the week after and maybe get to six or seven wins or something and, you know, state the fact that, like, well, we got close. We just had some bad luck in one-score games, and we're pretty we're pretty close to getting there. We just need a little bit more time and give that whole sort of thing. And then it, you're pretty much just like the 2018 Texans all over again. The one thing, though, that this question made me think of was, you know, Rivers said um, in a previous podcast or something we were talking about through our, our website or our website or email that he thought the next coach after Bill O'Brien would be worse than Bill O'Brien and kind of make us wish we had Bill O'Brien. So I don't wish we had Bill O'Brien, but I thought for sure, like, if they fire up Brian, they'll get a good GM, they'll get a head coach that can build an offense around Watson, and then immediately they'll be like a playoff caliber team again because of Watson's talent. Instead, we ended with Nick Casario, a trade request, David Coley, sexual assault allegations, and somehow uh, it has been like worse, you know, from a performance standpoint with David Coley than it was with Bill O'Brien. And, you know, it's upsetting, but yeah, he was right about that. And I, I hate it when he said it, and I still hate it now. Our next question is from at Uprooted Texan 99. He writes the beautiful Minister of Sports Information article that is now an evangelist program. And he said, kimchi, greatest condiment or great condiment? Uh, I, I think kimchi is great. You know, if you go to Costco, you can get a pound, you can get like three pounds of it for seven bucks instead of getting, you know, not getting 12 ounces for $9 and that sort of thing. It's beautiful. It's spicy. It's five calories. Um, you can eat as much of it as you want. You know, your breath may be a little bit, a little stinky afterwards, but that's why the Lord gave us toothpaste. Our next question is from at Carlos Flores, H-O-U, who also is a member of the Masthead. And he asks, what will John Grenard's sack toll be by the end of the year? So John Grenard, at the moment, is far and away the Texans' best pass rusher. He currently has six sacks, seven tackles for a loss, seven quarterback hits, but also he's done it without playing you know, a ton of snaps. It took him a little while to actually being you know, part of the rotation this year, he's played 157 defensive snaps, which is um, 48%, and really like they're playing their edge, their top starting edge players 56% or so. Um, so he's not even playing half the snaps yet. And so at the moment, with you know having six through seven games, I'm gonna say he gets to 11. And last year, the Texans, their sack leader. Um, didn't get close to 11. It was J.J. Watt with five. So I think Greenard gets to 11. I think there's enough like interior pass rush juice that he's able to get some more you know deeper pass sets. They do have some kind of good games against teams that don't have great tackle play at the moment, like between Tennessee, between Indianapolis, between Jacksonville, between the Jets, you know, between the Seahawks. There's a lot of chances here for him to have some easy pass rush matchups. So I'm gonna go with 11 for Greenard which would be, I guess, probably the most since Watt in... I'm going to check real fast. I think it's probably the most since Watt in the 18 season. So Winnie Merciless had 7.5 in 2019. And then back in 2018, Watt had 16 sacks. And that was, of course, like the one year Watt and Clowney were, um, were able to play a full season together. His next question is, will Brandon Cooks be moved by the deadline? I mean, I, I, it's hard because 
if you get a second or third round pick, you have to do it. But it's hard just because I think the Texans don't have an offense without him. Like he's the entirety of their offense. Not just like most times you say, well, this number one wide receiver is the entirety of their passing offense. He's their whole offense at the moment because the Texans still have the worst run game in football. Um, but yeah, I think if you get a second or third round pick, you do it. I think if he agrees to it and is like saying like, yeah, I'll go there. I want to get out of here, especially after his tweet tonight about you know what happened after the Mark Ingram trade and the fact that they're good friends and everything else too. And Mark Ingram being you know satiated by being moved. Uh, you also saw Lonnie Johnson Jr. saying you know he's happy that he's free to go somewhere else too. So I don't know. I think if you get a second or a third, it's worth it. The Ringer had an article today talking about you know trade request stuff by Ben Solik. And he said a second round pick for Cooks to go to the Rams, which I couldn't see the Rams doing it. Um, they give a second round pick to get Cooks back for a rental pretty much. But the Rams do need like, they don't have a lot of deep speed talent at the receiver position. You know, it's the Sean Jackson, that's in. That was one thing that kind of gave me concern about their passing offense. But Stafford's so good at it and their receivers are so shifting great route runners that it, and they're so good at scheming. It hasn't necessarily killed them. But yeah, I mean like Cooks, and Cooks just really hasn't won a lot of vertical routes this year either. So I don't think Cooks would be like the guy you'd want to do that. But, uh, but yeah, if you get a second or third round pick, I'd say it'd be worthy to trade Cooks. I, I think it's going to happen now that he's he's as upset that he is. I do think Houston could get at least a third round pick for him. And if you're able to get a third, um, I would do that trade. So the next questions are from at found of HOU Sports, a good friend of ours. He said, what does Mark Davis have in his backpack? So <laughs> Mark Davis had a press conference interview where he's sitting on a leather chair wearing a backpack, and he looks very small too. Like he looks like a, a child sitting on a king's throw. He's rocking the, the beautiful haircut that he has. He has a starter jacket on. You know, he, he looks like Billy Madison at the moment. Um, it's beautiful. But I think in his backpack he has a lot of coupons to P.F. Chang's. He probably has some papers highlighted of, you know, John Gruden's emails and with the, not that Gruden stuff highlighted, but what was going off the Washington team stuff because he did, was really kind of against firing Gruden too. And it took you know, pressure from the league for him to, to make that decision too. Um, I think he probably has some crosses from Dave, Derek Carr. He probably has some vape juice from Max Crosby as well. Um, probably some edibles since he lives in the city of Vegas and uh, maybe some water too. You got to stay hydrated, hydrated there. He doesn't look too pink in this picture. He looks pretty, you know, pretty like he looks like a like a pig in winter. You know, he looks like he's pretty hydrated. So, it's a it's a very hysterical picture though. His next question is top three Halloween films. I'm gonna say my first one, Scream One. It's my favorite horror movie. Um, I remember being a child and being and really wanting to see it when I was like nine years old or so. And being told to close my eyes at certain parts when, uh, when an older cousin was watching in the same room, and ever since then, like I really wanted to see it. I finally got to see it like two or three years after that. And I just like the way it looks too. Like the sweaters are cool, the haircuts are cool. Um, it's really campy, just like in the way they filmed high school movies in the '90s too. Like the how meta it is is fun. The twist at the end is great. It has like a good amount of like psychopathy. The kills are fun. Um, it's just a it's a beautiful movie. I'd say two would be Rosemary's Baby. It's one of the like it's an actually it's a movie that's actually scary. 
And I'm also just a sucker for movies nowadays that look real, where like it's not digital, it's not fake, it's not filmed in a warehouse somewhere. And they also don't treat you like an idiot. They don't treat you like a child. They don't tell you everything that's going on. Like it's all there. The story is very concise and it's there and in front of you, but it's not like thrown in your face. And the the end, you know, is is beautiful, <laughs> you know? Like her like her the shock on her face is incredible. The the black manger is uh, one of like the best images ever. And also I don't like how they I like I love how they never show the baby because if you show the monster, the monster never lives up to the expectations. The imagination's better. And a good example of that too is like the end of Sinister. Like the movie's good. And then again they show the monster pop up out of the camera and it kind of ruins the whole movie. Um the third one I'm gonna go hereditary. It's really similar to Rosemary's Baby where like it matches the same thing where they don't they don't tell you anything, they show you everything. It's one of those where it's even better like the third, fourth time that you watch it because everything's there and there's a lot of things to pick up on it too. Um, Tony Collette does such a great job in it. Just absolutely horrifying a performance. The gore in it isn't over the top, but like it's really well done. And like the end, the end's great when the song plays too. And I, I just like the way that movie feels. Like everything's really dark. Everything's really cold. Everything's really stuffy. Um, and it's also kind of funny in some ways. But yeah, it has everything. I think it's kind of more of like a late summer movie than a Halloween movie. But uh, Halloween's usually associated with, with scary. So I'll go with those three. His next question is, would you rather do Halloween things and trick or treat at Eastbury's house or Joel Osteen's church? Um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I would like to go to Eastbury's house just because it'd be more of a reconnaissance mission. You know, seeing what sort of candy did he give out. You know, I always got mad whenever I was a fat child, whenever you go to houses and they gave you like crappy candy, like Bitto Honey, or I got a bracelet, bracelet once that said Jesus loves you and I wore it you know, for ironic purposes as a terrible, black-hearted, you know, child that I was. So I would go to Eastbury's house for, you know, like for reconnaissance reasons, just seeing what he actually gave out, you know, see if he, if he uses that culture money to good use and is able to spend every waking moment of his life helping build the culture of the Houston Texans. So the next questions are also from found of HOU Sports. Is this D-line better than 2020? Well, I would say no because the difference is that the last year's defensive line had J.J. Watt, and Watt was still you know, a top-10 defensive lineman. At the moment, the Texans don't have that. I do think like this version just has more depth. You know, like It's no longer built around Woody Mer- Merciless's corpse. You know, Ross Blacklock was you know, terrible last year, playing in a defense that really didn't take advantage of his skill set at all whatsoever. You know, Charles Omenet, who had a couple of sacks, Rushing more in the interior. Jacob Martin had three. Uh, but a lot of their sacks, too, and pressure came from blitzing. You know, it came from Eric Murray. It came from Nate Hall. It came from A.J. Moore. It came from Tyrell Adams. It came from Justin Reed. So they, they did blitz more at times last year, too. That New England game was a good example of that. Um, but, yeah, I mean, like, Carlos Watkins isn't good. You know, P.J. Hall, big almost play. P.J. Hall was a very good pass rusher. Got close a few times. Corey Luga had a sack, and that was something that was memory hold for me. But I do think, like, just because they don't have Watt, it's not as good. But they do have more talent. Like, I'd rather, like, Malik Collins is a lot better than P.J. Hall is. And even though Omene, who's at a worse spot defensive end, you know, Greenard's been better than Merciless was last year. 
and Jacob Martin has, you know, one move and that sort of thing. There's just more depth depth here last year, but, you know, the difference is not having Watt at all. His next question is, is there a one-year vet worth extending? You know, really, I think Collins maybe if you just put him in a pure three-technique pass rushing role just because he's been so bad in run defense. And Cam McGregor-Hill has been the best pickup that Nick Cassero had last year. Like, he's been a good, strong side linebacker. He reads plays well. He's tackled well. He shoots the gap well. Um, you know, he's been better than Kirks. He's been better than Zach Cunningham. And, like, I wouldn't mind him coming back. But it's just kind of like once you get a little bit older, how long that lasts. And there's always linebackers out there. But, like, he's been very good that spot, and he's been a lot better than Kirksey has been. Or Zach Cunningham has been either. You know, and Terrence Mitchell, I think, is fine, but he doesn't play any man coverage at all. And if you don't play man coverage at all, um, or or really, like, he's playing this elementary scheme, you know, there really is no point at all. I think it's just more about the scheme, why he's been, you know, as you know, pretty okay as he's been. But, yeah, it really is, I think, Cameron Gregor Hill and maybe Malik Collins, and that's it. And a lot of these guys just have not made an impact at all uh, whatsoever this year. They've been there. They've been warm bodies. They've been, you know, maybe better than Eric Murray and this sort of thing, but it's been uh, it's been pretty terrible. His next question is, does Coley make it to 2022? I thought for sure he would. I thought Coley would be here for two years at least, be able to help with morale, help during a rebuild. But, I mean, there's just so many things here that are just done so poorly, whether it was decline the penalty to punt against Cleveland or the field goal decisions against the New England Patriots or the fake, fake punt or the punting decisions against the Colts. Like, he's just been just awful in making decisions at important parts of the games. And, like, if you're a player, you know, you're thinking about where you want to go. I re- I don't think I want to go play for David Coley. And after seeing what happened to these veterans this year, uh, they really weren't given a chance to have a good season, to be able to take on long-term contracts somewhere else. Like, look what's happened to Desmond King. You know, he's a perfect example of a guy who's really good in zone coverage. He's good around the box. He's a great tackler. And now he's starting outside cornerback where he's never been good in that spot. He's never been good in man coverage. And so I really just don't think there's veterans who would sign up or young players who want to have a chance to get some playing time. I don't think they want to come to Houston as well either. And so with Coley there, you're kind of limiting your talent pool. And I just don't really see how like you can build anything along with it. And also if they go one in sixteen and haven't been competitive and Davis Mills hasn't done much. Yeah, I really don't think Coley will make it to 2022, which is bizarre considering like you just thought, well, he'll be here for the rebuild and then once they have enough young talent and the culture's changed and you know players are coached up, then he'll retire and somebody else will come in. I, I don't see it, and I just think there's been so many dumb and terrible decisions that uh, he won't make it out this year. His next question is, assuming they pick second, third, and Tensel's still here in 2022, would the Texans look to BPA strategy early, even though it's between a left tackle and a safety, Neal and Hamilton? I just don't know anything about the draft. Um, I I like the NFL. I don't watch college ball at all, but I'll probably watch and read some stuff. Yeah, going into next year. So at the moment, I just don't have a good feel for it. I just hope the Texans have at least you know two or three top ten picks in this draft, and uh, I hope they hold on on trading Watson so that way they can get the most out of them. And the whole point is like the Watson trade is the spring build, the springboard the next good Texans team. The next question is from at Confused Lefty. Which rookie so far has been the most impressive for the Texans? I mean, this is hard. You know, you got Nico Collins, you got Davis Mills. You got Roy Lopez. 
You got Garrett Wallow. You got Brevin Jordan. Uh, I saw Wallow play one snap, and he got steamrolled in the red zone. Brevin Jordan hasn't made an appearance yet. You know, you have Nico Collins, who missed some time, and you have Davis Mills, who's a starting quarterback, but is one of the you know three worst starting quarterbacks in the NFL at the moment. I mean, I think it has to be Roy Lopez. You know, he's shown good hands in the pass rush. He's been able to bull rush some. He's been, I don't know, kind of bad in the in the run defense as far as like holding on to his blocks and sticking against double teams. But like he's not terrible, you know? Like he's been he's been like a, a contributor, you know? He's not like a net negative. He's been pretty whatever at that spot. And he's also had some like splash plays, like a good swim move against Buffalo. Um and like his hands are good, which you don't really see from a younger player. And as far as being like a six round pick, you know, you don't expect that much from a six round pick and maybe he's a potential, you know, rotational defensive tackle, which is a great, a great, great pick to make in the sixth round. But um I'm interested to see more with Nico Collins. You know, it's hard for wide receivers whenever they first get in the league because so much of what they do is based around who their quarterback is. And so whenever you get drafted to a team like Houston, you don't have any quarterback talent. We just don't know what Nico Collins is at all. Like really the one thing he's done is run inside breaking routes off play action. And he's caught those. He's done a good job running them. Um, but we haven't seen much in the red zone. We haven't seen much go down the sideline at all. And that was what his skill set was in Michigan. And so like he's been he's been good at those inward breaking routes, but we just don't know much there at all. But I do think Collins is going to be the most talented guy in this draft class. But uh, Lopez has been the most impressive so far. His next question is, in terms of progression, what would we, what would we need to see from Davis Mills this season to feel he has potential to be a franchise quarterback for the Texans? And, I mean, it's everything, you know? Pocket presence, accuracy, the ability to make, you know, more than three throws, um, being able to throw it with any ability downfield. There's just a huge list of issues here, you know? And uh, I don't really see it at all. I know David Coley said something like he's shown stuff to be a possible franchise quarterback, but I think that's just him you know, saying nice things in the middle of a press conference. Our next questions are from at Houston Football with one L in the number three, another good friend of the podcast. And he asks, what is the hesitation to get more reps of Scotty Phillips at running back and Omeyna who at defensive line, who they took off? I think one of the things about Houston is they really, it's hard for them to admit failure mistakes. And by signing Burkhead, by signing Lindsey, by signing Ingram, by keeping David Johnson, like all four of those decisions are bad. Um, I think even like even though Ingram's been the best running back and has been like pretty pretty good this year, just by having him there and paying him there instead of just drafting or finding UDFA back or finding a young guy where there's so many spots of that position because it's such a fungible position, I think that in itself was a mistake too. And so it's just hard for them to admit when they when they make bad decisions. And so I think that's kind of it with Scotty Phillips that you know Phillips is talented. They just don't have the the wherewithal to actually just say like this isn't working out. We can't get David Johnson, to, you know, twelve touches a game because he averages less than four yards a touch on it. You know they they don't like playing young players for whatever reason too. Um, with the Menahu, I think it's just because he was bad and like he was bad defensive end. He doesn't have the speed to bend the corner at all. He doesn't have, he's never been a good run defender and has been the same issues there, but like they haven't been putting him at the spot that he's good at. And he's a good interior pass rusher. And last week, finally against Arizona, they put him on the interior. He rushes the passer. He had a good, you know, ghost rip to create some pressure. Um, he wasn't able to take down Kyler Murray, but at least created pressure. 
And, you know, he's good in that role. Like, I do think, like, Collins and Omen, who's not a bad interior pass rush com- combination, but it's just more about, like, playing those guys in spots they should play at. And that's kind of what the Omen, who is bad defensive end, they put him in a better spot. And, um, and cutting Winnie Merciless, it sounds like, has allowed him to be more on the active roster, too. Uh, any positives at all from the roster? Greenard, Lopez, and Collins. I just talked about these guys. Um, aside from them, I don't... Like Justin Reed's been really good at as a two high safety, you know, creating turnovers like he did back when they could play cover two, but now they can't play that anymore. Um, but yeah, aside from those three players and Justin Reed being good in that role, I would add Cam McGregor Hill in the mix that he's been a good linebacker. But yeah, that's really it. Like there's four, I think, positives, you know, and uh, it's it's really tremendous to say. I, I guess I would also add that all Claire and Brown have been good run blockers this year. Like, Brown, like, really gets after it. He's a barbarian in that spot. Um, Alclair is, like, he's been okay, but he at least, like, works really hard and wants to block and is there to block. Unlike you can say about Jordan Akins and Ryan Griffin and, and Darren Fells and all these other tight ends who couldn't block at all whatsoever. His last question is, what would be a realistic progression to expect from Mills from the remainder of the season? I would just think, like, getting him some shots, throwing the ball downfield, because that's what he was good at in college, you know? And, uh, and like, if he can do that, that would make the run game open up because you're not dealing against eight guys in the box. And he, he has shown he has shown that he has the arm to be able to put the ball in those spots too. Like, his arm strength, I think, is above average, and it's been better, you know, playing inside inside the stadium in Houston too. So I really would say that. I think that's something that's likely. I think it's something that maybe he could do. He did it three times. We just haven't seen him do it. And so I'm going to bank on that. Uh, our last question is not from Found of Houston Sports. Again, that's HOU Sports. What's the outlook for the interior offensive line in 2022? I mean, they benched Max Sharping from Justin McCray. I don't think he can play here at all anymore. I mean, he's been so much worse since his rookie year. He hasn't had the strength to play the position. And I would hope Tyus Howard can move back to tackle, but I'm assuming they're just going to leave him at guard because, again, the Texans don't really admit mistakes at all. Justin Britt, you know, talks a bigger game than he plays. He's been better than Nick Martin, but that has been all that difficult to do. He has good leverage. He has good hand placement. Um, but he just misses too many easy blocks. And he doesn't have, like, the mobility to reach the nose tackle or the strength to deal with bigger guys or to really consistently, you know, get up to the second level. And in pass protection, he's just, he, he slides the wrong way sometimes, makes mental mistakes. He, uh, he can be beat by, like, bull rushes and he grabs too. He's had, you know, two bad holding penalties this year as well. So, like, I would think Howard sticks a left guard, but I think next year they probably find a new setter and they probably find a new right guard. Um, or, Howard, yeah, Howard sticks at left guard and they find two new spots in those positions. What, Desmond, what did Desmond King do wrong when he put an outside cornerback? I don't think Desmond King didn't do anything wrong. I think Casario did a terrible thing wrong by keeping Vernon Hargraves and then training Bradley Roby before the year which did ensure that Vern Hargraves is going to start at outside cornerback. And so I don't think King did anything at all, you know, poorly. It was just more, this is what happens when you re-sign Vern Hargraves. And I wrote about whenever that decision happened that the funny thing about depth is that depth is usually called upon. And the Texans kind of forced upon themselves by trading Roby, by, you know, keeping Hargraves at that spot. And now you look around, it's like, what are you going to play outside corner? And the answer has been Desmond King. And he's been you know, very bad that role. His next question is, based on what you've seen, how many pro bowlers will they end up with? Um, I guess every team has to have one, you know? 
Every team has to have one. And I mean, you would think it'd be Laramie Tunsil because he just kind of gets it. And there hasn't been like that much good left tackle play in the NFL this year either. So I would guess Laramie Tunsil. But I do think if Jonathan Grenard gets 11 sacks, he has a chance to get in too. Um, Justin Reed maybe, but he hasn't made the same impact play since he's been playing more strong safety now that they've been playing more cover three. But yeah, I would think it would have to either be Laramie Tunsil or Jonathan Grenard. I would guess Tunsil just because like name alone. And uh, I think they get one. And really the only reason why they'll get one is I do think it's like the like the baseball where everybody gets at least one. His last question is, if Miami goes full desperate, Bill O'Brien, what do you expect? I would say three first-round picks at a minimum, and I would say two seconds, and I think they would get one, one young defensive player, whether it's Jalen Phillips, whether it's Christian Wilkins. Um, I think that's, that's a big assortment, um, a big cornucopia of players that they could get if they decide to make those trades, you know. So, I'm gonna go with uh, I'm gonna go with those three. I'm gonna say three first round picks. I'm gonna say two second round picks, and then I'm gonna add Jalen Phillips, Javon Holland, or Christian Wilkins to that list. And I lie, we did have another question here. It's from at Texans Kool Aid. What are you reading these days, philosophy or otherwise? Well, the hard thing about the football writing stuff is that I just don't have a lot of free time at the moment. And, you know, I have a family and everything as well, too. Um, so, like, I have a lot of free time aside from the the football stuff that I do. And my least favorite thing about football season is that I'm not really able to read. I miss it a lot. As soon as the season's over, I'm able to read again. And, like, whenever this thing comes to an end and I stop doing this, I'm excited to be able to go for walks every weekend. I'm excited to not have a Twitter account. and I'm excited to read. The last thing I was reading, though, was The Master of the Margarita, which is some Russian novel about the devil you know, showing up to Russia in a black cat that drinks vodka. And uh, it's a lot. it was a lot of fun. I got halfway through it, and I didn't, able, I didn't have a chance to read it for the last few months or so, which is a bummer. This summer I read A Lie in August, which is the Faulkner novel about the pregnant woman who goes a fur piece from Miss Alabama to Mississippi to find the man who impregnated her. And that one's a, it's a very sweet book, and... There's like four passages in that one that you know, are absolutely incredible, which is kind of typical of Faulkner. Um, and I also read some books about homeowning this, this past year. And I read some books about babies, you know. And so that was kind of what, what soaked up my time reading. Next year, though, I think one of the things I'm going to do is get back into more like the Carl Jung stuff that I liked reading two years ago. And I want to read Faust. I want to read Paradise Lost. And I want to read Dante's Inferno. And so I think as soon as football ends, and I think it's like, you know, I, I think it's uh, fitting too after a season of hell to kind of go deep into hell and uh, and read those three books too. Our next question is from at Diehard Chris. If it's true your body weight drops 21 grams immediately after death, how much weight will we lose in the unlikely event Jack Easterby is fired during our lifetime? What a beautiful question. Um, I'm going to say... If Jack used to be fired, I I think we would all gain weight because of the celebration, because of the parties, because of everything that would ensue if they actually finally get rid of Jack Easterby. And I, I don't think it's gonna happen with Nick Casario as the general manager. And if you assume that, you know, they give Casario like, you know, three years or whatever, I think he stays there along with them. And most importantly, it's that the owner really likes him too. And so it would take Casario to turn against him. 
to be able to make that move. And the last time, you know, that happened and, you know, Eastby got kind of cornered or whatever, it led to O'Brien being fired and it led to a switch of general manager for Casario to become the GM too. So I'm not expecting him to go anywhere. Um, I really don't see it unless like team players just like completely disregard signing with Houston, which didn't happen this past off season. And I do think some of the Eastby stuff may be overblown after talking to Steph about it, you know, where some, he turns some people off, but it's not like it's as bad as maybe it is here, but uh, here from our vantage point. But that being said, I'm not seeing it. But yeah, I think we would all gain you know, 20 pounds from the feast and the celebrations that we would all have together. And so our last question is from at underscore necrodank underscore. Give me one bit of Texans news to keep me from pulling the trigger. And he photoshopped the the Toro with the gun in his mouth. Um, I'd say Jonathan Grenard's good. And that's really it. Like Grenard being good is the one you know, source of light that we have at the moment. He's the angler fish. I, uh, I'm happy that he's here. And uh, that's really like the one nice thing that I have to say is that Grenard's good and, uh, and we needed that. So this is a long one, longer than I thought it'd be, but there's a lot of great questions that we had to get to. Uh, we should have a preview podcast tomorrow evening for your weekend as well. And until next time, I'm Matt Weston. Thank you for listening to Ballard Radio. And thank you again for all the great questions. Keep them coming. And we'll do this as the season progresses as we continue to try to enjoy this Texan season as much as possible. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com.